The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. And welcome to the Airwaves of Voice of the Cape. If you just tuned in, 91.3 FM Stereo, 89.8, 90.9, 95.8, as well as www.vocfm.co.za. My name is uh, Mohammed Fasik Peterson, and I'll be with you for the next while in the program, The Burning Issue. Looking at uh, this e- e- evening, uh, the state of children youth care centers in South Africa, um, and uh, also looking at a particular uh, incident uh, or that has recently uh, come to light in media and there's a lot of discussion and debate around this and uh, we'll be chatting to various role players throughout the show um, and uh, we welcome your comments on 072 SMS us on Now we know the issue making news in the past few weeks is the recent closure of the Al Noor Child and Youth Care Centre and the subsequent arrest of the facility manager. Uh, now the closure comes as a result of the Department of Social Development's preliminary investigation into a number of serious complaints of alleged physical and sexual abuse at the facility. Uh, while the issue garnered a lot of attention, it certainly raised alarm bells, especially around the impact uh, impacting uh, secondary trauma and exactly how safe some spaces are for the most vulnerable children. Uh, and of course, uh, we're talking about kids that come sometimes from uh, backgrounds of abuse uh, and neglect. So tonight uh, we'll be chatting to, as I mentioned, various role players and uh, on the line, we have Joanne Barrett, the advocacy manager and the spokesperson for the Women and Men Against Child Abuse in the Western Cape. And in, in studio with me, I have Sadiq Jacobs, Chief Operating Centre Manager at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. Also, Zainab Baker, Social Worker uh, at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. And then also, we have joining us uh, Naima Mayer. Uh, she's the Managing Director of Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. Uh, later on, we'll be speaking to Dr. Shahida Omar, Director of Therapeutic of the Teddy Bay Clinic of South Africa and then towards the end of the show we're hoping to get the Minister uh, for Social Development in the Western Cape, Minister Shana Fernandez. But of course to my guest in studio and online, Assalamu alaikum and good evening. Well, of course, uh, I think I want to start off with uh, uh, my guest online, uh, Joanne Barrett, uh, and uh, I, I want to talk about the um, issue of uh, the protection of children, and uh, we look at this in light of the Child or the Children's Act uh, here in South Africa, I think of 2005. Now, um, when we look at when we look at the incident that I've mentioned and uh, the impact that it has had on extremely vulnerable children, not necessarily talking about uh, children, you know, who in, 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 a, in an environment where they are in a family home. Here we're talking about children coming from perhaps abusive relationships, coming from uh, a neglected space, and then coming into an institution where, you know, they have experienced trauma and they have experienced even more uh, horrific things. Um, how, how, wh- what is the role, in a sense, of uh, lawmakers? What is the role of society in the protection of orphan children? I 
Kathy, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, basically, what we know, orphans are vulnerable children. Children are a special group in our society, and because they cannot take care of themselves, they have been di- identified as a group um, in need of special protection. So an orphan or a vulnerable child is a child that's under the age of 18, like you said, whose mother, father, or both parents or a primary giver has died, and they need care and protection. Providing care and support to millions of orphans and vulnerable children and reducing the high levels of violence against children and women are among South Africa's most daunting tasks. Even with the country's progressive child protection laws and policies uh, um, preventing and addressing violence, it remains a massive challenge. I mean, in 2017, there were 2.8 million orphans in South Africa. And we know that the Constitution recognises that that children need special protection. And specifically, Section 28 of the Constitution sets out special rights for these children, where they have a right to family care or parental care. Um, If a child is taken away from his or her family, the child has a right to have other appropriate care. They have a right to basic health services, basic social services, and really a right to be protected from abuse or bad treatment. And every child has a right to be protected from a child from child labor too. So the way in which children are cared for really has a profound effect on their development. And for me, a scary problem is, is that because orphanages generally cannot pay for staff, and they operate like with limited resources, they attract a lot of volunteers in. And for me, this is a huge problem. And why do I say this? Because volunteers come in and say they love working with children, often because children are enthusiastic and working with them is very active and hands-on. Most of the tasks volunteers are given when working with children are simple, and it's rare that volunteers are actually expected to have any specialized skills or to even participate in any in-depth training before starting their volunteer work. For me, the problem here is how do we know that these volunteers are not pedophiles, are not sexual groomers or traffickers? It really opens up child sexual exploitation. So I think a lot of criminal checks need to be done, background checks need to be done, police clearance certificates need to be obtained. We need to check on the child national sexual register. Because orphans are really, they're vulnerable children, and often they are subject to abuse by extended family members as well. I mean, sometimes people in the community too, even those who even get the grants become vulnerable as really family members via to become their foster parents. Um, and they then keep the money for themselves or they refuse to provide for the needs of the child emotionally and physically, and the children then are not aware of their rights, and so they don't report this abuse. Joanne, you've mentioned you know some checks and balances that need to be put in place, uh, but then if we look at the laws governing the protection of children in South Africa, are we doing it enough from an, a from a provincial, from a national government level to uh, protect the rights of uh, children? You know, it's it's so hard. Um, sadly, because orphans need a home, and sometimes they have to go into a care group because many of the children who are labelled as orphans are blazoned across brochures. It's poverty, and it's not a loss of family that put them there. And sadly, we've seen desperation will make people do unthinkable things, especially with the promise of ample food, um, a solid education, comfortable bed. And because all of this around the world, caregivers are willingly giving up their children to orphanages. 
And sometimes they even get cash in return. And this is obviously where human trafficking comes in. And, you know, for me, I just think DSD really needs to play a huge role here. Um, the child and youth care centres or orphanages need to have designated social workers working for the state or the government or even a qualified designated child protection organisation who is responsible for the best interest of the child placed in alternative care. And I, I do believe people working in these CYCCs need to actually be suitable to work with children, getting enough that you know, through the Act, doesn't, I mean, I'm saying the Act doesn't actually say who is suitable, but states clearly who is unfit to work with children. So really the responsibility lies with the Department of Social Development to be sure that these centres are registered and that people are suitable to work with children. The orphanage, I also just feel, must be monitored constantly by DSD. There must be solid regulations in place regarding the children's needs and care. And again, the social worker needs to report any incidents of child abuse occurring at the CYCC immediately. Social workers, sorry, last thing I wanted to say, <laughs> social workers must also ensure a safe environment. I mean, if you think of it, if abuse is left to fester, it manifests in the children and they then begin to abuse other children. And why? It's because they have normalized this in their, in their minds. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to talk uh, and, and go back to the issue again of checks and balances, but also uh, when it comes to monitoring institutions, um, ha, ha, has the Department of Social uh, Development has uh, has they, have they be consistent in in, in, in you know uh, being able to monitor and being able to keep an eye on institutions across the board to ensure that children are getting the proper care that they need and to ensure that. Uh, um, they aren't falling prey to, to, to abuse? You know, I, I don't know, I, and I don't actually think so, because if we look at the Alnua case, how did that fall through the cracks? How are these organisations operating without being registered? How is the Department of Social Development, like they say, they've been referring the children, the, the children's court have been re referring the children to them. How have they not been monitored and checked? So I don't think there is any stress laws in place that ensure that these children are protected from uh, abuse like they've, they've been getting at the Alnua um, uh, orphanage. So I do believe DSD really needs to up their game here. Um, these are children and every single child deserves to grow up feeling safe and loved and definitely protected. That's definitely the voice of Joanne Barrett, the advocacy manager and spokesperson for the for women and, and men against child abuse in the Western Cape. I'd like you to stay with us, Joanne, um, as I turn my, uh, my attention now to my guest in the studio, uh, Mr. Sadiq Jacobs, uh, Chief Operating uh, uh, Centre Manager at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre, also Zainab Baker, Social Worker uh, at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre, and then also uh, with us, Naima Mayer, uh, Managing Director of Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. Now, this institution has been in existence for over 28 years and um, I, what I want to get what, what I want to chat about is um, obviously the challenges that 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 face orphanages and particularly in in the case of, of vision where it's it's also a faith-based institution um, and also at the same time uh, just 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 getting the understanding of how orphanages uh, uh, operate from the inside getting the understanding the nuts and bolts of, of these institutions so I want to start off maybe with mr. Sadiq Jacobs uh, again I said I'm and welcome to the show. Wa alaikum uh, salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, when we look at um, 
understanding how orphanages operate, what are the fundamental requirements that an institution like yours needs to be able to then be registered, to be able then to operate and to take in children? Yeah, um, I must uh, compliment the Department of Social Development. Uh, they are very hands-on, especially with us, uh, Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. So they're doing everything in their power to assist us and to make it comfortable for us and our children in our care. Um, children get placed uh, with Ch Vision Child and Youth Care Centre through the court, through the children's court and each child must have a court order. We are not allowed to accept a child without a court order. We also get um, uh, registration from the department um, which gets renewed on an uh, annual basis. So they are uh, monitoring us very well, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So uh, when, 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 we, when we talk about uh, um, the, the need or the demand for child and youth care centers in South Africa, um, is, there, uh, is there capacity you know, for to address, uh, you know, this great need to have. Uh, when, we, when we think about orphanages, and we think about uh, the idea that, uh, as as great as the, the as great as the the, the, the the problem is in South Africa, um, in your experience, you know, are institutions able to expand to accommodate? Or sometimes have you had to say, you know, unfortunately we are full, we are not able to give service to you know the the to to, to the, you know the broad scope of the problem to as many children you know as there are there and I think I want to ask uh, this question uh, then to uh, Naima Maya. Um, I know at the moment you know there's always a great need because what happens is your children need to be assessed and it's not only just about housing children it's also about the therapeutic side so you need to actually ask yourself what therapeutic programs do you have in place that's able to assist this child and if not then obviously then find or the department then will find other centers that have programs to accommodate these children because we need to remember each child is different each child is a different need um, and each child has experienced obviously you know different trauma so one has to take that into account and also before placing a child into a centre. And then also I want to bring in uh, Zena Baker who is a social worker at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. And so, you know, you get to see firsthand the condition of, 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 of a child uh, when they come into the institution. And as we mentioned, with the background of abuse, with the background of, you know, ab abandonment, or sometimes there's, there was a loss, you know, in the family, uh, death of a, of a loved one. And that trauma also is being dealt with the child, along with, you know, a sense of, you know, not being uh, part of a family unit anymore. So when, so when we look at that, how do... Uh, you know, what wh 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 is the what is the approach then to help uh, normalize the situation for that child and kind of you know uh, integrate them into a group of, of of kids now that kind of have to kind of serve as a, as, a, as 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 a family for <coughs> that uh, for that child. Okay, assalamualaikum. I think with vision, um, the important thing for us is you know 
it, it starts with the, the first step that the child takes into the center. And with that, we have an orientation program. So it means that the child comes in, the child will um, meet, you know, everybody. The child will be shown around. The child will be handed to the care worker. And to also mention that the child will come with the external social worker. So the child are referred and the child will come and be brought by the external social worker that works with um, child protection agency and this social worker will obviously remain the child social worker which will be the external social worker and Myra would then be the internal social worker with vision um, then you, the child will be taken through the orientation program and from there the child will be monitored on a regular basis you know and have check-ins with the child um, the child will be you know told about the house rules and I think the important part is that as difficult it is for the child to trust at that particular stage that we try our best you know to to help the child to know that here's someone that they can you know come to for help come to for comfort um, and from there obviously a lot of work are being done in terms of reaching that point where the child would feel that you know here is somebody that care for me is somebody that I can come to and I can come and speak to but it obviously do take you know a while given the the difficulties that the child might have come yes. from let's just talk about those difficulties um, and, and those experiences what are some of the types of cases that you have seen in the past um, and, and and have these given you an indication of the scope of of the problem in terms of abuse against women and children particularly children in this case I think that we at Vision, you know, we have children that come in with different, or they are there for different reasons. And I can say that, you know, there are children that come to us because of abuse, because of neglect, you know, or sometimes because they're orphaned. So there are different reasons why children do come into the center. Um, and these are obviously the reasons um, that we see children enter the center. I think it is also important to make an important, you know, assessment. And I think that assessment are even made even before the child reaches our doorstep in terms of seeing that, you know, would we be the best place for the child to be? And obviously in terms of our program, um, would we be able to meet the child's needs? I want to talk about compliance and what are the principles uh, in that you as an, as an institution or any institution <coughs> excuse me, that looks after children, uh, what, what, what are the things that you need to comply with in order to continue to operate? Um, and, 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 and I just maybe want to briefly touch on that before we go to break. Um, with regards to compliance, oh. we, so we, ha we have to report to the NPO because we, have to, we need to be registered with the NPO, then we also need to be registered with the um, Department of Social Development. And I must say that um, we, they do an annual audit with us and it's quite intense. It's also to a point where they interview our kids. Um, our staff get interviewed separately, they go through our files, our social worker gets um, audited as well. So they are, there's quite a bit of one needs to meet before in order to be compliant with them and I must say it is a lengthy process but um, it's a worth it. the process is worth it and growth can only take place from there. 
This is the program, The Burning Issue. Tonight we're talking about orphanages and safe havens uh, for children and uh, youth care centres. Uh, we have online Joanne Badet, uh, the advocacy manager and spokesperson for the Women and Men Against Child Abuse in the Western Cape. Also, uh, Sadiq Jacobs, uh, Chief Operating Ch- uh, Centre Manager at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. Also, Zena Baker, Social Worker at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. And then also joining us, uh, Naima Mayer, Managing Director of Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. When we come back, uh, we will continue. You're welcome to WhatsApp us, 072-238-0712, SMS us, 4791. You'll try and read some of those messages uh, when we do come back. Stay with us. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Welcome back to The Burning Issue. Uh, this evening we're talking about the state of uh, children in youth care centres in South Africa. And online we have Joanne Barrett, uh, the advocacy manager and spokesperson for the women and men against child abuse uh, in the Western Cape. Uh, then also Sadiq Jacobs, Chief Operating Centre Manager at Vision Child and Youth Care Centre uh, here in Cape Town. Zainab Baker, Social Worker, Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. And also Naima Mayer, Managing Director of Vision Child and Youth Care Centre. And uh, um, I want to... Uh, Maybe just uh, direct this question to Joanne and ask if we look at uh, uh, the challenges facing uh, the the, the uh, facing uh, youth care centres, facing orphanages. Um, is there enough financial support uh, from government uh, which which would allow uh, orphanages and youth care centres as uh, as institutions to be able to better provide services to uh, uh, children and to 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 um, is, is, what I'm basically asking is is there enough funding from government and if not what is the impact then of these institutions in having to fundraise in order to continue to stay afloat and does that impact sometimes on the level of service they can provide? Um, yes, I think so. I don't think that there is enough. And, you know, that's where it goes back to my point that um, if DSD and the government departments were actually more involved, I think there would be better care. Um, you know, to rely on sponsorship today is very difficult, and a lot of NGOs rely on sponsorship. And, you know, when we in a tough economic time like we are in South Africa at the moment, it gets very, very difficult. And obviously that's when we hit the problems because obviously staff cannot be paid um, and you know qualified staff do cost and this is where we look at the volunteers that are coming in that are not properly screened so I do think um, the government actually needs to get more involved and, and start funding organizations like this and obviously in saying that we need to make sure that these associations are actually properly registered so that the government has more control of it. Because, you know, if it's just left, like Alnur was, um, they were basically operating. I mean, what scared me the most was when when she was arrested, there were 35 children who were undocumented in the records. How on earth did that happen? And yet, the orphanages say that these children have to be referred by the children's court. I don't understand how that happened. So 
You know, when we look at the Children's Act, it says any person who voluntarily cares for a child, either indefinitely or temporarily or partially, they must safeguard the child's health and the well-being and the development, and they must protect the children from maltreatment, abuse and neglect, uh, degradation, discrimination and exploitation, and any other physical, emotional or mental harm or hazard. And I think if we had proper... Uh, funding from the government, we would have better run organisations. Now I want to come back and then also uh, raise the issue with f- uh, of fundraising with my guests in studio because you are running an institution you have been for the last 28 years and an important component of that is funding because, uh, let, let's be honest, the lights don't just, don't just you know stay on, you've got to pay the bills um, while looking after these children, while providing the services, while providing the services of, of, of a psychologist or of a, of a, of a, of a, 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 a just basically all the services that needed needs to be there to help give these children a normal life so um, uh, Mr. Sadiq Jacobs from your perspective how crucial is that element of fundraising to you know help you pr- uh, better operate and provide those services and and basically just 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 to keep a uh, vision uh, child and youth care center you know open and keep to keep the doors open yeah uh, yes, um, my comment is that um, over the years, Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala made it possible for outdoors to remain open for 28 years. But we are feeling the pinch now with the socio-economic situation as it prevails in the Western Cape. So we, uh, as Vision, opted to do fundraising via uh, charity shops. We have three charity shops and Alhamdulillah, um, we have received good support from the community at our charity shops. Uh, they are based in Weinberg, uh, in Ottery, and also in Belgravia and Athlone. So we get good community support from from uh, our supporters, and uh, it, it helps us to re- to keep our doors open. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And then also um, the the burden of responsibility of uh, uh, fundraising on an institution like this. Uh, would one say that you would like to have more staff to take on the burden of responsibility, uh, you know, so so that you can have a fundraising team, that you can have an administration team? Um, do you find sometimes that you have to take on dual roles in the institution in order to to be able to cope with, with the demands of, of running an institution? Yes, um, we find most of our staff take on dual roles, um, especially when sometimes you find your social worker has to be childcare worker if we short staff. And I mean, it's, it's only normal that, you know, if staff will sick, so then, which means then others will have to fall in line. Um, but it is quite difficult, and I mean, it would mean the world if one could then take on more staff, but then also mainly focus more on um, providing more professional services, like, you know, um, clinical psychologists, um, educational psychologists, because those are the things that the children need mostly. And if that becomes difficult then to afford that to them. So I think that would be then the main reason why one would then want to ensure that um, we're always looking at a way of increasing our funds because at the end of the day our main purpose and our aim is to ensure that the children receive better services and treatment. So then also um, when we talk about uh, the addressing the needs and creating a balance in young people's lives, um, coming into the institution you're dealing with young people of different ages uh, with different needs and uh, so 
how does one as an institution uh, identify firstly what the emotional needs and I think I want to ask this question to uh, Zainab how do you identify what the emotional needs of a child is because everyone's coming from a different home from a different experience and uh, you know dealing with different issues how, how does one identify that in, 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 that, in that situation I think, uh, like I said, you know, it's um, when the child even comes in, we constantly sit and have um, and do assessments and basically speak around everything that has, you know, caused or has been a reason for the child to be here. And I think from there, um, it is so important that not only the social worker, but all other, you know, role players, care workers, you know, give feedback um, and have you know, what we call um, multidisciplinary meetings or uh, panel reviews in terms of discussing, you know, what it is that they observe for this particular child. And I think from there, um, we then look at a, an individual development plan, um, which is something that we need to, you know, do every six months where we have to have, you know, these panel meetings or NDT meetings to discuss in terms of what is it that we feel this child needs and this would meetings also involve the child so from there we would then be able to assess you know what is it that this child needs I think you know the difficult part comes in is that with vision we do not have you know your um, psychologists on site or your occupational therapists um, and these yes you know inshallah are things that we would like to have but obviously financially you know it's not always easy um, but then we will sort you know um, professionals outside of vision and I think what what um, makes it very um, what makes it very good for the child is that alhamdulillah you know with help out in the community we had even professionals come and volunteer these services um, so that is what we then are able to make use of when we don't have these people in-house I think alhamdulillah personally I'm um, you know very happy right now because um, I feel that we need to have more um, paid for therapeutic um, services because there are services that we need and we um, do not have you know professionals that we can source or say come and do you know voluntary work so alhamdulillah I just um, as, as in I understand how difficult it must be you know financially but I have received the go-ahead to say you know if need be, we'll try and make a way and we'll actually pay for um, for, therapeutic. for therapeutic services. So, you know, the, the, these things that you're telling me, it all, all back, goes back to the issue of funding. And so this seems to be a key issue and a key theme uh, in, 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 in looking at the, the kind of services that can be provided to children, limited by how much funding that these institutions are able to, to, to uh, be able to raise. Um, now, I, I, one, of, one of the things that I also want to touch on is uh, when we talk about these institutions um, being, being run and key issue is transparency and um, the issue is raised about you know where does the money go you know someone comes in and says you know I want to donate or I want to do something so 
how important is it to have that you know clean financial audit to be able to open up the books not just to you know to auditors but to the public is in a sense to say this is where your money goes this is what we're doing and this is how we are bettering the lives of children I think that's important because we are trying to pride ourselves on transparency um, and responsibility so we have an audit taking place which is a financial audit taking place now starting uh, next week Monday um, inshallah all will go well um, but it is important because you need people to see exactly where the money is going and that is why we find that um, we encourage people like you know if you want to know what's happening at the center come in and if you want to have a look at our books it's available because I would also want to know where my money is going so and we want people to see exactly also where the money is going because you'll find that um, and then we'll tell you um, if you're gonna donate to us our electricity bill for example is 600 rand every second day can we use that because some people will say use this money and I want it only for food but then if we'll tell you we have enough food for the for the month can we utilize your money so we're gonna let you know also and that's what I'm saying transparency is very important that's why we encourage community to come to our center and to find because our needs change also all the time and you know um, I think one of the things that people forget is that uh, in learning in, in learning a home of this nature um, it's like a massive family in your in your home you're probably spending what four thousand rand three thousand five hundred on food a month uh, alone for maybe four people yeah you're dealing with i don't i don't know how many kids uh, all of them will need to be fed all of them need to be clothed all of them the, so, so the, ex, the cost is exponentially higher um and then also uh, as we mentioned earlier uh, as mr sadi jacobs has mentioned there is the impact of the economy and inflation and all of these things that do impact upon uh, uh, you know how how much mi- how much uh, bag you get for your buck basically and at the end of the day that means fundraising needs to become more intensified to be able to continue to meet those needs um what we're going to do is take a break when we come back we will continue and just before we do it let me just quickly go to a message here this one says an orphanage of course a safe haven for abused and irregular children abandoned question any irregular in- interaction with children individually or n- maybe a monthly basis checking on these kids one-to-one to see and ask if they feel safe or if they maybe feel threatened by any kid I think this is obviously in relation to uh, asking the question about the safety that we posed earlier of children in institutions and um, yeah but I think also adding to that the I- issue is uh, when we talk about uh, kids in facilities where uh, they don't feel safe Part of the, the problem is sometimes kids don't want to say, you know, I, I, I've been threatened, I, I feel, I'm feeling unsafe. In the case of Al Noor, uh, that 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 uh, that has recently come to light. Um, then also, if we look at uh, okay, there's some other messages have come through, but these aren't it's not necessarily for the program this evening, so we, we'll uh, leave that for another show. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, we'll chat more around um, the issue of uh, youth care centres, orphanages in, in Cape Town, South Africa as a whole. And uh, yeah, we welcome your comments on 0722380712 SMS us four seven nine one three. We'll be back after this. The burning issue. 
Welcome back to the burning issue. We're talking about the state of child and youth care centres in South Africa, looking at uh, homes for children, um, uh, orphanages for children, and uh, basically, obviously, the backdrop to this is uh, the recent uh, news reports around the Al Nuth orphanage uh, and uh, the closure of the facility after alleged uh, sexual abuse uh, of children and neglect of children taking place there, amongst other allegations as well. Uh, I have in line with me now Dr. Shaida Omar, Director of Therapeutics of the Teddy Bear Clinic in South Africa, and we'll be talking a little bit about the impact of secondary trauma um, on vulnerable children, particularly orphans and, 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 and other types of children who find themselves in homes for various reasons. Uh, Dr. Shaida Omar, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Voice of the Cape. Uh, Dr. Shader, first of all, I want to, uh, you know, just, just uh, jump straight into it. And I think um, here we have a model and, uh, of an institution that we've, we've mentioned now um, where there are allegations. And so we think about the fact that a lot of the time, and we alluded to this earlier in our program, where children are coming from, from you know, environments where perhaps there's tremendous violence, where there was emotional, sexual uh, uh, abuse taking place, where, you know, there, there, there were things that were happening that children don't necessarily that shouldn't children shouldn't have to experience and now perhaps coming into another institution and then uh, you know being victim of abuse once again so what is the impact then of that kind of secondary trauma on a child who perhaps sometimes is maybe not even recovered from 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 the the, the initial uh, trauma that they have faced so I think what we need to understand that this is an at-risk population group, children who are removed from the families, from situations which are untenable and not in the best interest of children, and they are placed in institutions or alternative care. Uh, those children are more vulnerable and are more likely to be preyed upon because that group of population realize that if they disclose, they've already been subjected to removal and they see that as a punitive measure that they feel responsible for what has happened and it is their fault that they have been removed from their very own uh, environment or context, regardless of the fact of whether it was a violent background or not. And now they come into another situation and because of fear of reprisal, fear of nobody believing them, they actually don't have a choice. What do they actually do? They remain silent. They allow the cycle to perpetuate itself. And this is where you find that your predators, whether it's sexual predators or, or uh, perpetrators who violate children physically, emotionally, in, in whatever shape or form, are more likely to to hit on these children simply because they know that these children will not tell, will not disclose, or will not break the silence. In fact, they would threaten them and, and uh, know fully well that nothing would come of this, that the children will cooperate. And therefore, we just find that this population group or this group of children are more likely to be subjected to further victimization, further trauma, and I think if we just look at the impact of the trauma, the cumulative effects of the stress, the violations, the anxieties, the fear, 
is actually, you know, one cannot even begin to describe what that, that child may be experiencing or has experienced and the impact it will have in terms of the long-term effects and the trajectory of that child. Now, um in your experience um, as a um, uh, as, as someone who deals directly with children uh, are, are institutions equipped to be able to deal uh, with, 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 with uh, the issue are they, are they equipped to uh, be able to protect children who are at risk um, and, and in, as a society have we have we placed enough enough emphasis on the issue um, as far as protecting vulnerable children particularly when it comes to in the, the sector that we're speaking about so I, I think you know there, there are huge concerns around this because often we see the panacea uh, or the cure for this kind of illness remove the child. Once you take the child away from that uh, context, uh, whether it be from family or whoever, you know, the perpetrators are within that uh, home environment, uh, thinking that by removing the child, the child will now be taken care of and the child will be safe and secure without actually ensuring or doing any kind of fact-finding around the institution or the alternative care that will be provided because often I feel that we as a system are failing our children because these institutions are opened, uh, are open because there's a need, a grave need for that. There's a demand for that because the numbers outweigh what is actually provided. And, and, and I think no uh, definite or rigorous evaluation and monitoring is actually done. So if we look at the staff or the caregivers, the supporting staff, what kind of screening do they go through? The recruitment process, the training process, the ongoing supervision, uh, you know, in terms of audits, quality control, in terms of supportive measures, all of that, I find that that is not rigorous, it's not proper, it's not thorough. That is where government departments are also failing or falling behind in that because uh, uh, the, the support, the interventions are not actually uh, sought out. And it might be on, you know, theoretically on paper we might have those things, but the actual implementation and execution of those kind of responsibilities and roles are definitely not uh, uh, carried out as it should be. And as a result, I think children are targeted and are falling prey to this kind of uh, social ills and violations which they should not be subjected to. And then also, um, in, in, in being able to identify, uh, you know, the warning signs, um, wh- how do how do uh, these these warning signs, you know, exhibit themselves or, or manifest themselves in children? Are there ways to tell when a child is experiencing this kind of trauma um, or secondary trauma? So there are ways. I think what one would would look out for is if we see, uh, you know, marked changes in the child's behavior. And when we speak about marked changes, one would look at a child that was 
perhaps more talkative, more engaging or lively, suddenly becomes extremely withdrawn, isolates himself or herself. You know, we would find that they, they have changes in the eating patterns where um, they have loss of appetite or sometimes uh, the appetite has become so uh, incessant where they, you know, they cannot stop eating, but also disturbed sleeping patterns, either sleeping far too much, not sleeping, um, interrupted sleeping patterns, recurrent nightmares, and if they're attending school, there might be changes in their grades, and some children will actually supplement uh, where they would excel in school, so not all children would demonstrate plummeting grades, and sometimes we would find that children would become overly compliant. And those are the children that are easily glossed over because often you see that child is, oh, that's such a good child, so, you know, such an obedient child, so cooperative, so willing. But that in itself is also a telltale sign because this child is going along to get along, uh, uh, seeking approval, affection at all costs, or it's a, a protective mechanism. That if I go along, I, I won't get into trouble. Nothing will, bad will happen to me. So these are things that one has to look out for. Also, if a child shows symptoms of depression, anxiety, you know, weeping easily, uh, these are things that we have to look at, like regression to a former stage of pain, of development, or even biting nails, pulling out their hair. Um, Eating, uh, when I talk about eating patterns, sometimes one would find that there's eating disorders. You know, it's all about the dynamic of power and control. So there are many symptoms and manifestations, but of course one, one would have to look at it in context and explore it and then, uh, you know, arrive at some kind of understanding of the child's behavior. But it has to be looked at within the context in which it occurs. Dr. Shada Umban, Shikan, so much for joining us and shedding some light on, on this. Uh, and uh, also, I think that uh, one of the things that we've, we've learned here definitely is the fact that uh, this is a multifaceted uh, issue and it requires a multifaceted approach. And particularly when we talk about the most vulnerable, uh, you know, in our society being children and particularly the children who are orphans, uh, children who find themselves in homes. Um, what, what, what's coming out of the discussion is... Uh, that uh, you know, there needs to be a multi-layered approach to dealing uh, with the issue and, and, and trying to address uh, you know the the the, 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 the and, 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 and cater to the needs of the child. All the best, inshallah, and shukran for joining us on Voice of the Cap. Shukran, thank you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa That was Dr. Shaida Omar, Director of Therapeutics of the TDB Clinic, South Africa, uh, talking to us about uh, the impact of secondary trauma on vulnerable children. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be in our final segment. We'll be speaking to Minister Shana Fernandez, uh, MSc for Social Development, uh, and we'll be talking about uh, the, the important role of orphanages uh, in protecting vulnerable children. Also, talking about uh, how uh, we as a society can help make these institutions uh, safer for our children. Stay with us. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo.
Welcome back to the Burning Issue, our final uh, f- uh, final segment, uh, and uh, we now are joined online by the MEC for Social Development, Minister Shana Fernandez. Uh, Minister, uh, good evening, and thank you for joining us on the show. Good evening, Fasih, and uh, good evening to the listeners, and thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure having you, ma'am. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, obviously, throughout the program, we've been looking at challenges facing um, homes, facing orphanages and, and child care centres, um, and one of the recurring themes is the issue of funding and the fact that uh, a lot of the times uh, orphanages are restricted in terms of the funding that they are able to provide to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the services they are able to provide to the children under the charge of care due to the fact that they, they, they have to find ways to keep the lights on and to make sure that, you know, that, that, that they can continue running. So from, from your perspective as the Minister of Social Development, well, we, how do we begin to help change that and perhaps alleviate the burden uh, that these institutions have um, in, in order to be able to help them better serve uh, children under their care? I think one of the important factors that you touch on is the ever-rising cost. Uh, Food prices are increasing, water, electricity, your day-to-day running costs, and it is a challenge. We have uh, 54 child and youth care centres in in the province, of which we fund, partially fund 53. So what we are beginning to see, and in my conversation with a lot of the uh, NPOs, is that donor funding is also on the decrease because of tough economic times, and we give a certain amount towards an NPO. So it's, it's becoming more and more challenging to juggle the budget. So that is a reality. The, the way in which we operate, though, there is a, an agreement which we sign up front around how money will be allocated. So let's just talk to um, child and youth care centres, because we are compiled by legislation to take care of our children. So that is one of the mandates that it's not a nice to have. We need to provide facilities. If not facilities, we need to provide for the well-being of the children. And the current funding model that is being used, in, in my opinion, would need to be revisited to face the onslaught that all NPOs and NGOs are experiencing of diminishing funding from donors. And as you know, um, the country itself, economically, we are in a really difficult space. So we're not going to see an increase in budgets. We're going to need to find ways to work smarter with the money that we have. And we need to be innovative and, and really think about how we can provide for the most vulnerable. It's not an easy, uh, there's no quick win here, and it is about engaging the whole of society to, to try and find solutions, because ultimately some children can't get placed in foster care. They have to go into an orphanage and they stay there. Let's say they come in young until they're adults. They don't have family 
the state has to take care of them. And so we're beginning to see more and more child-headed households, and we are seeing more and more children coming into the system. At this point in time, we've got something like 36,000 children in alternative care in, in the province. So it is staggering, and but we allocate almost 2 billion rand in this next financial year to try and provide um, under a program or sub-program called Child Care and Protection. So there is money, but one of the challenges we are experiencing, many of our orphanages are registered and, you know, they are equipped in every single sense to take care of children, but there's a burgeoning number of facilities that are operating without being registered. That is another challenge that we need to address. Because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the child enjoys the benefit of being taken care of. I want to I want to then talk about that, saying that you know there are the institutions that that are, that are not registered. Um, so so then the, the the role of the public, how important is it uh, for the public to mobilise and uh, make informed decisions about? who they donate to, and also to report when they suspect uh, that, you know, a, an institution, and obviously this is in light of the most recent story of the al Nur saga, but uh, to report when they feel that an institution is not operating either above board or not providing the services, the basic services to children under the charge uh, or care uh, that they are supposed to be. That's a very important point because um, we need the community to be the eyes and ears. The Department of Social Development cannot be at each and every centre on a daily basis. We do have norms and standards and monitoring tools in place, which is a standard practice that gets carried out. But sadly, at this point in time, it is almost reactive. Only once the whistle has been blown... You know, do we know that something's happening? So we are encouraging anyone. And in fact, the Child Protection Act requires that if you know that a child is being abused or ill-treated or neglected, that you actually call us and, and tell us there's a challenge. So we have a hotline, which I don't think many people know of, but um, it's manned 24-7. And I'm going to give you the hotline because I think it's very important. Since I took office some six weeks ago, I've had quite a few whistleblowers contact the department to alert us to challenges. Some were domestic in homes, others were in, in uh, care centers, and others in old age homes. So the hotline number is 0800 250 and we have trained people on that hotline who can immediately get involved. So we are requiring and we are asking society, and we also want to appeal to donors, because there's something that I think many South Africans don't understand, is that as the department, we don't have control over money that, that orphanages get through international donors so we don't know how much money there is 
and if the money is used for the appropriate purposes. So what is important, and we want to encourage donors, is to check, uh, and not necessarily... We, we are not saying that every orphanage or every child care youth care centre is doing things that are wrong and improper. But we do want to caution donors to check out the facility and in that way they can phone the department to make sure that they are registered, they have their fire certificate, you know, all the regular stuff that need to go with it. And, and sometimes having a nice building is one thing, but the level of care and the quality of care that the children get. Often we had an example where a neighbor reported uh, that she had continually heard children crying and the caregiver screaming at the children. So, you know, that's the kind of help we need from the community. If you suspect something's not right, uh, phone the number, phone in, we have our regular landline numbers, but ideally call the the toll-free number and, um, you know, uh, my number's out there, my email address is out there, and I have had many people alert me to what, what seemingly on the face of it seems like everything's okay until we actually send a team of people in and then we discover that it's not what it is supposed to be. So one of the things I will be doing is unannounced visits to facilities because I think when you announce that you're coming, you know, there's the whole rod or the minister is coming. And I, I don't think, um, not that I believe that what they're doing isn't right, but I do think it's necessary to see them in their normal mode how they operate and how they treat the children and are they getting the level of care that they should enjoy. So we've had some international donors who are, are a little bit nervous now and that of course in the wake of uh, the, the previous, the Al Noor orphanage, we've had international donors contact us and ask but how and why and sadly we can't monitor that money. So we are again appealing to, if, if anyone knows or sees anything that is out of the ordinary, it is better to report it. It's an allegation. It remains an allegation until it is tested in a court of law. But we cannot, we cannot have situations. Just today I've had to deal with the issue of an eight-month-old baby that was raped in her home. Eight months old. Whenever you uh, one one hears these horrific stories, your blood just you know curdles, and 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 you think about the fact that uh, again, uh, every every uh, year the sixteen days of activism campaign comes and goes, and uh, we are not yet uh, even scratching the surface of you know the magnitude of the problem, but uh, perpetrated particularly against children. Um, I, I want to then ask the question around legislature, around um, you know the, the 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 laws around the child the child act, particularly, and uh, ask the question uh, with the the current framework that we have to deal with uh, issues pertaining to you know the, the 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 orphanages and pertaining to the safety of children in, in the key of youth care institutions. Um, is the law robust enough to be able to deal, and is the Child Act robust enough to be able to deal with uh, uh, um, the situation as it is, or, or do we need more legislature around this matter? 
in, in my opinion, uh, is it Fasih? Yes. I, I believe that the Children's Act is quite explicit. But just bear in mind, the Children's Act pertains to the children and the carers, the caregivers. So we have a process where carers are screened, they're security vetted and everything. When it comes to the administration of a child and youth care facility, if it is an NPO, we don't know who comprises the board, who the owner is, because that's not in the domain of the Act. And I think that is where we are going to need to focus our attention because we are currently every facility will have a social worker most of them have their own social workers on duty and those social workers let's say we're talking about a child in foster care every two years the court order needs to be reviewed so you know those are processes that are that we know must be done. Sadly, in the instance of the, the other orphanage, there were some children whose orders had actually expired. But the point I'm trying to make is whoever is the owner or who is behind the administration, that is where we're going to need to review and revisit and tighten up. Because one often years of fraud and corruption so fraud and corruption doesn't mean the children are ill-treated, but it, it robs from the children because it would have been, if it was donor funding, it would be money that was intended for the children that is then being used by the, allegedly being used by the administrators or the board or community or whoever it might be. There's also another aspect where, that we need the community to be aware of. In many situations, like in old age homes, the, you know, the older folk, or even in child and youth care, the children are all okay, but there's a big battle around who controls the turf. And often there are lots of egos involved, and we get called in, there's a complaint that this is a, um, something waiting to happen, and when we go in, we discover that they're following the norms and standards, the quality of care is good and everything, but there are warring factions on the board that disrupt uh, the proceedings of the day-to-day -day running. So it's actually quite complex. It's not as easy as just saying we have children, we've got the Child Protection, we've got the Criminal Justice Act, but we must also look at the role of SAPs and the criminal justice system in terms of bringing perpetrators to book. And I must say, I condemn the rape of an innocent eight-month-old baby in the strongest possible terms. Well, it cannot be justified anywhere, anyhow, anyway. Uh, Minister, I want to say thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening to, to uh, uh, chat about this very important and pressing issue. And, uh, yeah, let's just hope that uh, as a society we, be, we, we begin to take this fight on uh, against uh, um, the abuse of, of women and children particularly and help to, uh, we, we are able to, in the next couple of years, turn the tide against what is definitely a scourge in our society. Uh, I want to thank you very much. Uh, all the best and have a fantastic evening for Thank you. I, I just want to ask you to remind the listeners 
that of the old adage, it takes a community to raise a child. We need our communities now to stand up, reclaim their spaces and places, and, and go to the, back to the day where your child is my child. So please share that toll-free number with them. I'll give it to you again at 0800 220 and someone will take that call. You could save a child's life by making that call. Thanks, Cynthia. Thank you so much, ma'am. It's that number 0800-220-250, uh, That's the hotline number if you would like to report any irregularities uh, that you have experienced at any child uh, or youth care centers or orphanages uh, where you feel that uh, children are either being abused or uh, they are not uh, maintaining the services that they need to render to children in these facilities. 0800-220-250. And that is the toll-free number to call. Well, uh, from myself, Mohammed Fasih Peterson, it's been a pleasure being in your company this evening in the program Burning Issues, standing in for Yazid Kamal. Inshallah, we'll be back with you next week. I bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Big thank you, big shukran to all of my guests uh, from the Vision Youth and Child Care Center. Also, uh, a big shukran to uh, Dr. Shaida Omar, Director of Therapeutics of the Teddy Bear Clinic, South Africa. Also, Minister Shana Fernandez, Minister of Social Development and Rights at the start of the show also joining us uh, Joanne Barrett, the advocacy manager and spokesperson for women and men against child abuse in the Western Cape. Well, next up is producer Fisher with Caravan. I bid you once again wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh big shukran to Umar.